Paul's vision in this book that we've been walking through is that the church would be one, that we would be one. His vision is that the church would understand ourselves as a colony of heaven, that we would understand ourselves individually as citizens of heaven who make up this colony so that we live and we breathe for the same purpose, the gospel. Uh, Look at what he says to summarize um, this book in Philippians chapter one, verse 27. This is kind of the key verse for us. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. He goes on to say in Philippians 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul's vision for the church is that the church would be a group of people who are one, who are united for the same purpose, and that is the advancement of the gospel around the world. That's Paul's vision. But there's a problem. And the problem is that in this church, in ancient Philippi, there are these two faithful, godly influential, respected women who have disagreed about something. We don't know all the details. We just know that it was a big enough disagreement that it was causing division in the church. And because each of these two women are so respected, because each of these two women are such great people, the church is confused about who to side with. And ordinarily, these two women who would work together on things, are at odds. And now it's awkward for some people because that's how some people feel about conflict. So it's awkward. Others are angry and picking sides. And Paul has been making these big lofty statements so far in the book, like, you're citizens of heaven. Be intent on one purpose. Have the same love for one another. Be united in spirit. He's saying all of these big lofty things. But now he's going to show us that these big lofty truths have to come down to earth. It's all fine and good to talk about unity and, oh, we're going to dwell together in unity. That's all fine and good until you have somebody that ordinarily you get along with and now They're mad at you and you're mad at them. How do you live as one then? That's what we're gonna learn today. Today, we're going to talk about how to live as one. How do you live as one? And the reason this is an important question to ask is because Uh, You probably won't write this down. Um, But eventually you'll have conflict in your life. Uh, Did you know that? Oh, man, that was so insightful. 
Put that down, meditate on that. Yeah, eventually you'll have conflict in your life, right? Um, it might be at work. It might be in your marriage. It might be with your kids. It might be with other family members. Maybe you guys are trying to figure out what to do with your parents as they begin to age. It might be with a group of friends. But eventually you'll have conflict. And depending on your personality, you'll approach that conflict differently. Some of you will be collaborators. Some of you will be avoiders. Some of you will be competitors, accommodators, compromisers. Thanks to Michael Scott, we know that the goal in conflict is not lose-lose or win-win, but win-win-win. Um, and there are a lot of helpful tips out there for ways to deal with conflict and tools, and those are all helpful. Today, we're not going to get into to some of those fine-tuned you know, tools. Instead, we're going to make four high-level observations. We're going to talk about four high-level principles that as Christians we need to embrace if we're going to live as one. So that's what we're going to do today. Four high-level principles to live as one. The first one is remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. The word gospel is just a word that means good news. It's the, the word that we use to summarize the Christian faith. It's, it's the message that somebody must embrace in order to identify as a Christian. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the message that God has created us to live in deep fellowship with him and with one another. He's created us to be in deep friendship, deep fellowship with him and one another. But all of us have broken that fellowship. We have all been wise in our own eyes and tried to go our own way and say, we know better than you. And in doing so, we've broken our fellowship with God and we've broken fellowship with people that we're supposed to love and that we're supposed to be in fellowship with. But God loves us and is committed to having fellowship with us. And so here's what God has done. He has sent his son, Jesus, into the world in order to bring us back into fellowship with him. Jesus left heaven and came to earth. Paul described it in Philippians chapter two as, as choosing to be selfless and humble. Jesus came. He became a man. He lived a sinless life. He went to a cross and he died in order to pay the price that we owe for our sins. And then he came back from the dead. He was raised in power and glory. He ascended to be with his father and someday he will return to judge the living and the dead. That's the gospel. God created us to be in fellowship with him. We've broken that fellowship. He sent his son in love to come and redeem us. The way that we should respond to that message is we should repent 
That is, we should change our mind about the way that we're living. We should say, you know what? Life is actually not better my way. It would actually be better with God. We should repent and we should believe in Jesus. That's the right response to the gospel, to repent and to believe. And so if you're here today and you've heard that message and you know that you are guilty of breaking fellowship with God and you're seeing that play out in broken fellowship with people that you care about, would you come believe today? Would you come home to your heavenly father? Would you be restored because of what Jesus has done? That's the invitation. But the invitation of the gospel is not just to get you into the Christian faith. But once you're a Christian, the gospel continues to invite you to repent of your way and believe the gospel. That's why Paul says, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. In Paul's mind, everything that we do as Christians should be done in view of the gospel. It should be done in response to the gospel. It should be done through the lens of the gospel. So where do we see that in these verses? Well, notice in verses one through five that the gospel is either alluded to or mentioned in every verse. In verse one, notice this. Paul says, so then, or therefore, In other words, what he's about to say is connected to what was before it. And Paul has just finished saying that more than anything, he cherishes the gospel. And he wants to be driven by the gospel and he wants us to imitate him in that. And so what follows is a response to the gospel. So then, he says, And then notice what he calls the Philippians. He says, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown. Then he calls them at the end of verse one, dear friends. That's the same word as dearly loved. This translation just translates it differently to mix it up, but it's the same little word. Why does Paul refer to these people as his family, as people who are dearly loved? Just because he's a really nice guy? No, because of the gospel. Because of what God has done for us by sending his son to reconcile us, God has made a new family that you belong to because of the gospel. Our faith makes us family. And so for this reason, Paul is going to give the instruction that he gives. And then notice He says, in this manner, stand firm. In what manner? Well, again, you have to go back to chapter three. He's saying, in the manner that he lives his life, making his aim to know Christ, in that manner, stand firm. So again, it's tied to the gospel. And then notice this little phrase, in the Lord. Do you see that in verse one? And then, In verse two, do you see that? He says, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. See that? And then again in verse four, 
He says to rejoice in the Lord. He uses that little phrase in the Lord nine times in Philippians. Three of them are in this little section. What does it mean to do things in the Lord? To be in the Lord means to do things. It's a, it's a shorthand for living in light of Jesus, remembering the gospel and how you live. The Lord is Jesus, he says. Jesus Christ is Lord, Philippians 2. So to do things in the Lord is to do things in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, or it's to do things in light of the gospel. So he says that in the Lord, we are to stand firm. That is because of Jesus, we need to stay devoted to him. Because of what he's done for us, because he's taken hold of us, we need to stand firm and try to take hold of him. That's what he said in chapter three. So stand firm in the Lord. He says to agree in the Lord. And the word agree is the same as Philippians 2 verse 2 when, when he said, think the same way. He's saying, because of Jesus, approach things with the same perspective. Agree in the Lord. Be of one mind because of Jesus. And then he says in verse four, to rejoice in the Lord. We should cherish the blessings that are ours in Christ. And then notice in verse three, he says, yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. So, all I want you to see so far in this text is everything Paul is saying, and we'll talk about the specifics of it, is grounded in the gospel. So the first thing that we've got to do if we're going to be a, a people, a church, individuals who live as one, we have to remember the gospel. Here's why that's so important. Two reasons. First, because that means that the gospel is not something that you eventually graduate from. It's not like, well, you need the gospel in order to become a Christian, but then once you become a Christian, we need to you know, move on to the, to the deep stuff. The gospel is the deep stuff. The gospel is not just milk, it is meat. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Zs. The gospel is never old news, it's always good news. So we don't graduate from it. We don't move on from it. We constantly remember it. It is the message that should shape our thinking. So that's the first reason that it's important to notice this. The second is that the gospel has resources. It has deep resources to bring different people together as one. As we think, as we dwell on, as we consider, as we remember the gospel, it has deep resources to bring different people together as one. 
The next three points are all implications of the gospel. If we're going to live together as one, we have to remember the gospel. The gospel can teach us how to live in fellowship with one another. So here's the second point. How do we live as one? We remember the gospel. Number two, love and respect one another. Love and respect one another. This is a direct implication of the gospel. To love someone in this context means to care for them, to be selfless towards them, to put them ahead of you. For real unity to occur, you actually have to love the other person. Let me say that again. This is convicting for me. For real unity to occur, you actually have to love the other person. Unity is not just a, well, just everybody, you know, shut up and get along. Real Christian unity that Paul is aiming for is rooted in the gospel. And because of the gospel, we love people, even people who are different than us. Even our enemies we're called to love. Why? How is that a direct implication of the gospel? Because while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Real unity requires that you actually love people. Love is humbly choosing to serve them. It's being selfless towards them. In verse one, we already saw he He's about to say his instruction in the context of my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters. Is he just blowing smoke or is that real? That's real. My dearly loved brothers and sisters. My dear friends, same word as dearly loved. This is what John says. This is not unique to Paul. This is the teaching of the New Testament. First John chapter three, verse 16. This is how we have come to know love. He, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. When it comes to living as one, to dealing with conflict in the church, we have to remember the gospel and we have to actually love the other person. We have to love one another. And... We have to respect one another. To respect means to admire someone, to treat them as if they're important. That's what it means to respect someone. In verse two, notice this. This is an interesting little detail. Paul says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Notice that he says, I urge, and I urge. He says that twice. 
Here's why that's significant is because grammatically that's actually, it makes it clunky. It's not necessary to say that twice. He could just say, I urge these two to agree. But instead what he does is he puts the burden on each of them to agree with the other. He puts the burden on each of them. He urges each of them to have a responsibility towards the other person. That is a sign of respect. To to feel as if I have a responsibility to you is a sign of respect. To just think, well, you have a responsibility to me or we have a responsibility, that's different than understanding that I have a responsibility towards you. That's a sign of respect. You see that? Then in verse three, so he's urging them both to agree in the Lord, both to be of the same mind. Then in verse three, he says, yes, I also ask you, true partner, we'll talk about what that means in a minute, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. Here's what's significant about this verse. Paul is speaking respectfully of these two women, even though they are in disagreement right now, even though they're causing division right now. He's still talking about them with respect and he's urging other people to still view them with respect. He's reminding everyone, these two women are faithful coworkers. Their names are also in the book of life. That is, they are known by God. And... I think it's worth pointing out that he refers to them as these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. We can be tempted to show less honor or less respect towards certain types of people. And sadly, sometimes that group of people has been women. In the Christian worldview, All humans, men and women, are worthy of respect because all have been made in the image of God. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and all can be made right with God by grace through faith in Jesus. This is without distinction. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I used to think that that was just him being a patriarchal, you know, maniac who's like, yeah, we're just calling them all sons, I guess. But he's actually doing the opposite. In a culture where a son would have been more valued than a daughter, he says, in Christ, you're all sons. He's not erasing the differences. He's elevating the status. Then he goes on to say, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Verse 28, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. In the church, we should respect everyone because everyone was made in God's image. 
Everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glory and everyone can be redeemed by Jesus. Women played a huge role in Paul's ministry in the early church and in the church today. And each of these women, Euodia and Syntyche, served faithfully. They had unique personalities, unique gifts, unique contributions. And so Paul, as he urges them to agree and as he urges the church to help them agree, is making sure that these women continue to be respected. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Last time you had a conflict, did you stop to think, wait, let me remember the gospel and let me make sure I love and respect this person through this. Did you think that? I didn't. I mean, I had some conflict yesterday. And my first inclination is not to to remember the gospel and think about what God has done for me in his son, Jesus. And my first inclination is not to treat the other person with love and respect. My first inclination is to want myself to be loved and respected. If we are going to live as one, we have to remember the gospel and we have to love and respect one another. Like Paul said in Philippians chapter two, verse three, we've got to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than ourselves. When you think about the person that you're in conflict with, do you have a selfless attitude towards them? Do you think about them and their opinion as if it's more important and worthy of respect? Because of the gospel, we're called to love and respect one another. And this is a key to living as one. Number three, we have to utilize godly mediators. Utilize godly mediators. To Paul, we should be open to wise godly mediators helping us resolve our conflict with one another. This is also a gospel-influenced idea. How do we resolve our conflict with God? How does God resolve it with us? There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. God sends a mediator named Jesus. In verse two, Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What is Paul doing? He's putting himself in the position of a mediator. He's being a a third party who's trying to help these two women come together as one, to have the same mind because of Jesus. And notice, as we already pointed out, he says, I urge and I urge. That demonstrates that Paul is being an even-handed, a fair, a wise and objective mediator. He's not coming in and saying, look, I already heard her side of the story, so here's what you need to do. Syntyche. I mean, don't you know Euodia was just da-da-da-da-da? No, he's being an even-handed and fair mediator. What does godly mediation look like? Paul is giving us an example. It prioritizes the gospel. 
agree in the Lord. Look, you're not gonna necessarily agree on every single thing. The goal is maybe not that you guys are gonna agree on whatever, what color carpet, you know, or whatever the, the deal is. You may not ever agree on that, but we can come together as one because of Jesus. So he's, he's prioritizing the gospel. He's being fair and, and even-handed. He's being objective. Um, <clears throat> this week, uh, last week, I, I guess, um, I heard uh, there's a friend of mine who um, is in a pretty intense conflict with someone, and they're both part of the same church. And um, this person's pastor approached uh, them about it and wanted to talk. And when the pastor and my friend sat down, um, the pastor immediately began to explain to her what she needed to do to solve this problem because he had already heard the other person's side of the story. And in his mind, he knew what needed to happen. And whether or not his advice was right. He wasn't being the kind of mediator that Paul's encouraging here because he wasn't actually listening. And again, whether or not the advice turned out to be right, he ended up wounding a friend, creating a little bit more conflict. And now it's, whereas if they would have sat down and actually listened, it would have, it would have gone more smoothly. Paul, though, is not the only person who's inserting himself here as a mediator. He's also encouraging the church to function as a mediator. Notice he says in verse three, yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. There's some debate about who he means by true partner because the word you in verse three is singular and true partner is singular. And so maybe he's talking about an individual in the church that everybody just would have known about. I think that he's talking to the church as a whole, but he's talking to them as one. He's saying, church, you guys have an obligation to help these two women. To help them is a special little construction that implies a community effort. And that's why I think uh, that he's talking to the church as a whole. Um, there's also an urgency to this request. He says, verse three, I ask you. But then when he says, I ask you to help, the word help is a command. It's an imperative. So he's, the sense of it is this. Please help them. You must. The church has an obligation to work together for peace and reconciliation within our body. This is another reason why it's important, I think, that we pursue meaningful membership here, that we work on our membership process. Because membership can be a tool that helps people stay committed to this goal of living at peace with one another. 
So the church as a whole has a role to play in, in helping people live as one. You gotta be careful with this. This doesn't mean that every single individual needs to become super, you know, a busybody and super bossy and just going around from thing to thing to thing, making sure, hey, they said this and they said this and that actually stirs things up. The idea is that if there's conflict between individuals, we care enough about them that we want them to be able to live as one. And so we want to be helpful whatever that might look like, to help them be one. So to live as one, we need to remember the gospel. We need to love and respect one another. We need to utilize godly mediators. And finally, we need to be gracious. We need to be gracious. Look at verse five. Let your graciousness be made known to everyone. The Lord is near. Let your graciousness be, be made known to everyone. This word graciousness is a, a really interesting word. Um, one Greek scholar that I read this week said, this is one of the truly great Greek words that is almost untranslatable. Um, one suggestion for how to translate this word is the English word magnanimity but I don't know what that means, so that's not helpful. Um, the idea, though, is a sweet reasonableness. That's the sense of this word, gracious. It's a sweet reasonableness. Um, it's a generous spirit. It's a refusal to be petty. Um, Aristotle, of course, Greek speaker, he contrasted this word with what he called strict justice. For him, this word meant a generous treatment of others, which, while demanding equity, does not insist on the letter of the law. It's willing to admit limitations. It is willing to make allowances so that justice doesn't injure it's a quality that keeps one from insisting on his full rights, where rigidity, being rigid, would be harsh. In the New Testament, uh, this word appears five times in this form and then two other times in a different form. And it keeps company, or it's normally surrounded with words like peaceable, good, pure, open to reason, rich in mercy. Most times it's translated gentle. Sometimes it's translated kind. One commentator said this word is that considerate courtesy and respect for the integrity of others, which prompts a person not to be forever standing on his rights. I tried to summarize all of this by saying, graciousness wants to make things right, but not to make the person pay. Um, as I was trying to think about just, it's such a powerful word, and I was trying to think about examples, it was easier for me to think of negative ones. Um, in college, I had two friends who um, 
were in this big fight, and the school ended up getting involved um, because there was a prank that happened, and it went too far, and it damaged one of my friend's stuff. And um, when they were sitting down with the school to come up with the damages, uh, the friend um, whose stuff had been damaged, they were were trying to come up with consequence, and... um, so my friend whose stuff had been damaged came up with a number, $324.62. So he calculated it to the penny of what was owed him. That's the opposite of this word. Um, another negative example of this is when someone has wronged you and they're trying to apologize to you. They're trying to do something to make it right. But because they haven't done it exactly the way that you would have expected or exactly the way that you wanted, then you continue to hold it over them. That's the opposite of this word. One positive illustration. Um, I'm... Uh, in school right now, working on um, in this doctoral program. And last semester, uh, my professor was Dr. Kevin Van Hooser for this class. And um, he's an incredible scholar and just an incredible guy. Um, And he has every reason to be very arrogant. (laughs) And uh, I had put the, the final paper due date in my calendar two days late on accident. It was just a mistake. And so he emailed me two days before I thought the paper was due and I'm still working on it. And he says, uh, hey, Nate, are you planning to complete this course? Um, you know, where's the paper? And I send this long, you know, I'm so sorry, it was a mistake. I thought it was due in two days. I'm so, you know. Um, and he responded, Nate, thanks for your note. I'm well acquainted with dumb mistakes, my own. I'll be happy to accept the paper if you can send it on today. Then I sent it and I explained how, you know, in the syllabus it says that this is what should happen. And so I understand if, you know, uh, the penalty, yada, yada. And he just replied, no penalty will be assessed. That's this quality. So let me ask you something. Are you marked by this quality? In your perspective, when you've been wronged, do you think about this person who's wronged you with grace or with annoyance and rage? In your attitude, do you want things to work out for them just as much as you want them to work out for you? In your communication, how is your tone? Is it calm? Are you direct? Are you honest? Are your words seasoned with salt? Are your actions demonstrating that you want their best? How do we live as one? Four high-level principles. Remember the gospel. Love and respect one another. Utilize godly mediators.
and be gracious. What kind of church is able to do this? What kind of church is able to live this way? A church that is committed to hearing and doing the word of God. A church that is rejoicing in the gospel. A church that knows one another, listens to one another, prays for one another. A church that cares about seeing people come to faith in Christ. This is part of our witness. And a church that understands grace. Let's be a church like that. Let me pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us with that. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that when we had rebelled against you, when we had wronged you, when we had offended you, you can say to us, the insults have fallen on me. And you can say that because you sent your son, Jesus. God, would we cherish that? In the Lord, would we be of the same mind? Would we be gracious to one another? Would you be honored in how we live? It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Would you stand and sing with us?